The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. We might. Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this day and the time we have spent already. Every gift, every perfect gift, every moment of our lives comes from you, O Lord. We recognize the greatness of your grace to us, O Lord. We thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love. You've loved us in Christ, and you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but deal with us in grace. You see us in Jesus. And uh, if that were not the case, we would despair, O Lord, for we know ourselves having been shown ourselves by the law and by the Spirit, O Lord, to be sinners. And, Lord, having a sense of the greatness of your holiness and your great majesty, O Lord, we would find ourselves completely undone, destroyed, and cry, Woe is me, I'm ruined. But, Lord, we also know that the greatest event in history has happened now. It's the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection. We thank you that 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 act of God in Christ saves us from our sins. And so I pray that tonight as we study just an individual, a piece of flesh and blood, I think Calvin himself would be shocked that we would even be spending our time this way tonight. And the only way I could really defend it if I had to give a defense in front of him or why we're studying him um, would be that he is a helpful tool to help us to see the greatness of you, O Lord, your great majesty and glory. And so, in the same way that we go to hear a teacher teach on the Word, we're not really trying to hear that individual so much as we really want we want you, Lord. We want to know you. We want to know your Word. And so, I pray that that would happen tonight. I pray that if the people who have come here tonight, probably somewhat courageously, investing their hour studying John Calvin tonight, that they wouldn't walk away uh, thinking, gee, that was a waste of time, but they'd walk away thinking one thought, what a great and mighty God we serve who's still alive he's never changed he's always the same and I pray that we would have a sense of that greatness enlarged in us by this study tonight so that we won't waste our time we pray in Jesus name amen so in the spirit of my prayer I'd like to ask that you turn to page three and skip all these great quotes about Calvin all right we'll get to that but um uh, John Piper every year has a pastor's conference and he does a biographical sketch and a lot of my insights and thoughts from this uh, initial study will come from some of his studies as well. He did this in 1997. You can get his talk online. You'll see a lot of similarities between some of the insights that I have here tonight and uh, you know his talk in 97. Um, but he immediately began just with a meditation on the great I am, God as the great I am. And so I think he, like I, felt a little uncomfortable just going right to John Calvin. And, and it was really that Calvin's teaching that makes you feel that way. Because Calvin so maximized God and so minimized man. And so, you know, you, you, you swim in that sea for a while and then you're like, why are we studying Calvin tonight? He would say that. So I think John Piper, having a sense of that, wanted to bring us to Exodus chapter 3 where God was about to send Moses, remember, on a great mission to go rescue his people from bondage, slavery, to uh, Egypt. And uh, you know how Moses, Moses asks a question that we all would ask in that situation, who am I that I should go and speak to Pharaoh? Which is a question which was proven to be completely irrelevant. 
by God's answer. God's answer is, I will be with you. Which is really logically somewhat of a non sequitur. You didn't answer my question, God. I asked, who am I that I should go? Well, I did answer your question. You don't matter. You're irrelevant. I could have raised up out of the stone someone to go speak to Pharaoh, but I chose you. And so I think that's, it's good for us to be humbled by that and to say, you know, God sends us on our mission and uh, we are nothing. He could raise up anybody to do this anytime. So we wouldn't, shouldn't think too much of the man, shouldn't th- think too much of the individual. But more than anything, you know, uh, of course, Moses asked this question, you know, they're going to want to know your name. What shall I tell them? Who, who shall I say sent me? Who is it that's calling? And so it says in Exodus 3, 13 and 14, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? And what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So uh, Piper makes these comments to his fellow pastors. He said, think of the absoluteness of God's existence, never beginning and never ending never becoming, never improving. Simply and absolutely there to be dealt with on His terms or not at all. Let it hit you, brothers. God, the God in whose name this conference gathers, pastor's conference, never had a beginning and God never had a beginning. He said, I am sent me to you. And the one who never had a beginning but always was and is and will be defines all things. Whether we want Him to be there or not, He is there. We do not negotiate what we want for reality. God defines reality. And when we come into existence, we stand before a God who made us and owns us. We have absolutely no choice in this matter. We do not choose to be. And when we are, we do not choose that God be. No ranting and raving, no sophisticated doubt or skepticism has any effect on the existence of God. He simply and absolutely is. Tell them I am has sent you. If we don't like it, we can change. (laughs) For our joy. Or we can resist to our destruction. But one thing remains absolutely unassailed. God is. He was there before we came. He will be there when we are gone. And therefore, what matters in ministry above all things is this God. I cannot escape the simple and obvious truth that God must be the main thing in ministry. Ministry has to do with God because life has to do with God. And life has to do with God because all the universe has to do with God. And the universe has to do with God because every atom and every emotion and every soul of every angelic, demonic and human being belongs to God who absolutely is. He created all that is. He sustains everything in being. He directs the course of all all events because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory in our ministries forever. Well, as I read that, I thought about Westminster Confession of Faith and I I think the definition of God uh, fits into this kind of language as well. So I'll share that as well. And this is the Westminster Confession uh, done by some Puritans in the mid-17th century. One of the just most sublime pieces of theological writing I've ever read. And this is of God and of the Holy Trinity, chapter 2. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts or passions, immutable, immense, 
eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of His own immutable and most righteous will for His own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and withal most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself and is alone in and unto Himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever Himself pleaseth. In His sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. To Him is due from angels and men and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Well, I tell you, read that, and it's like, do I even think of God like that? Can God talk to us like that? Is he allowed to talk to us like that? He's, you know, he requires whatever he demands of us, and that's it? So as I was reading these things, I went to do a perspectives class in Wilmington, Last night, and I was driving with Paul Jostino and reading and thinking about these thoughts. We were kicking it back and forth. And I I said to him, probably the most helpful little meditation I've done recently on these kinds of themes has been this one question, which I've shared, I think, from the pulpit before, but I'll share it with you again because it just continues to be helpful to me. What could the human uh, race do to the sun? Think about that. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's just very helpful meditation for me. If we decided we were angry at the sun and wanted to do something to it, what could we do? Any suggestions? I hope nothing. <laughs> I, I think I'm, hope. Susan. I think I'm going to push beyond hope, though. Let's meditate together, because I think we're going to. You're going to go to bed assured that we can do nothing. Global warming. <laughs> well, we can. That's to the earth, though. What can we do to the sun? Any thoughts? Any suggestions? Suppose we wanted to, uh, the most powerful weapons we have are nuclear weapons. Blot yes, Susan. It doesn't change the sun. So my question stands, huh? You wouldn't get within apparently 2, 2.5 million miles. It really isn't. Not very close. <laughs> I love you, brother. I just do. I love that spirit. No, we're not. And, and here's the thing. Even if we wanted to do a big nuclear rac- reaction on the surface of the sun, what would the sun say? So what? I'm not impressed. I do this all the time. The solar flares have more power than all of you can muster. We can't do a thing to it. And I think it's just set there in the sky to remind us how small we are and how mighty is God who made the sun, who sustains it every moment. And here's the thing. What can we do to God? Well, apparently we can hurt Him in some way. Why? Because He's chosen to allow Himself to care and to be compassionate. We can move Him to compassion. We can can 
move his heart, but that's only because he's chosen to allow himself to be movable by us in some way. If you didn't get a handout, I'm sorry I didn't make enough, really. So thank you, Flynn, for serving us in that way. Appreciate that. So I, anyway, I, I just really wanted to begin with a meditation on the greatness of God. I just think we can, we can do no better than meditate on that. And frankly, bottom line, if John Cal- Calvin helps you to meditate on God, then use him. Read his works. And I think he would say the same thing. He is as nothing except perhaps as, a, you know, as, a, as an avenue, a tool uh, to help us to understand the greatness of God. And frankly, I think he does precisely that because Calvin was a faithful, consistent expositor of the Word of God. He was faithful to the Word of God. I don't think it's any surprise, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that the Westminster divines who wrote those words were all Calvinists. You know, they, they all were followers of that, that system of theology known as Calvinism. They were able to write that kind of thing because there's just something about Calvinism that frees you up from a man-centeredness which seems to be, frankly, I hate to say this by way of confession, my home base. You know, just man-centeredness, me-centeredness, etc. Yes, Susan. Is there any other um, individual that whose name to whose name we attach an, we attach an ISM in Christianity? I'm just curious to yeah. place him. Jacob Arminius. Okay, all right, but uh, in, is that discredited? Or? Luther, Luther, Wesley, Wesley, lots of them, and probably all of these godly individuals would be horrified to know that their names were attached, and they're all of them, you know including Arminius, I don't think would have wanted Arminianism attached to him. So, good question. Uh, let's continue with the scripture and then I'll go back and start reading some quotes about, the, uh, about Calvin himself. But uh, God, this one who we are studying tonight, created all things for his glory. And I, I, want, I want you to understand B and C in light of Calvin in a moment. I'll tell you why. But Revelation 4, 9 through 11 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. That, dear friends, is the nature of heavenly worship. And I think you'll be healthy in your life if you do that kind of thing, if you just worship God like that. But he's being worshipped there because he is the creator of all things, God the creator. And then secondly, he is worshipped in heaven in Revelation 5 as God the Redeemer. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So basically, God the Creator and God the Redeemer is the two, two, major, that's the two major sections of Calvin's Institutes. And so, again, you see the biblical nature of it and how Calvin sought to glorify uh, God by uh, uncovering uh, what God taught us about Himself in Scripture. So why is this specifically important for us today? John Piper says this, the glory of God rests only lightly on the modern evangelical church. You know, that word lightly is significant because the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, means weightiness or massiveness. You know, like they tell us that 99.6% of the mass of the solar system is in the sun. Um, It's just this weighty, massive thing. 
and again, in that way, represents God to us. Um, but glory should, should be a massive, heavy thing to us. There's a, a sense of the massiveness of God. He's not a lightweight being. David Wells says, It is this God, majestic and holy in His being, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. Leslie Newbing said this, I suddenly saw that someone could use all the language of evangelical Christianity and that the center was fundamentally the self. My need of salvation. And God is auxiliary to that. I also saw that quite a lot of evangelical Christianity can easily slip, can become centered in me and my need of salvation and not the glory of God. And so I think the central contribution of Calvin is the glory of God and I think in the, in the Word. Calvin said the central task of ministry is then to set before man as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of God. For we are born first of all for God and not for ourselves. All right, so we'll talk more about that. But uh, I just wanted to begin with God and uh, it all goes down from here, from here. All right, so anything from here on out, I hope it's helpful. But uh, just to start with God is the best way to proceed. So what I'd like is just talk about some quotes. Why are we studying Calvin? I've already given you some hints, and that's because Calvin did a great job of making clear the, the glory of God. Um, but if you look back to page two, this quote from J.I. Packer, who is, I think, one of the preeminent church historians, theologians of our day, wrote Knowing God. He said this, it would be hardly too much to say that for the latter part of his lifetime and a century after his death, John Calvin was the most influential man in the world in the sense that his ideas were making more history than those of anyone else during that period. Calvin's theology produced the Puritans in England, the Huguenots in, in France, the Beggars in Holland, the Covenanters in Scotland, and Pilgrim fa Fathers of New England and was more or less directly responsible for the Scottish Uprising, the Revolt of the Netherlands, the French Wars of Religion, and the English Civil War. Also, it was Calvin's doctrine of the state as a servant of God that established the ideal of constitutional representative government and led to the explicit acknowledgement of the rights and liberties of subjects. It is doubtful whether any theologian has ever played so significant a part in world history. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this, the longer I live, the clearer does it appear that John Calvin's system of theology is the nearest to perfection. Uh, Calvin, Philip Schaff said this, a preeminent church historian, Philip Schaff said this, Calvin easily takes the lead among the systematic expounders of the reformed system of Christian doctrine. Calvin's theology is based upon a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He was the ablest exegete among the reformers and his commentaries rank among the very best of ancient and modern times. His theology, therefore, is biblical rather than scholastic and has all the freshness of enthusiastic devotion to the truths of God's word. At the same time, he was a consummate logician and dialectician. He had a rare power of clear, strong, convincing statement. He built up a body of doctrines which is called after him and which obtained symbolical authority through some of the leading Reformed confessions of faith. Taking into account all his failings, Calvin must be reckoned as one of the greatest and best of men whom God raised up in the history of Christianity. Now, we come to my favorite quote about Calvin. Now, before we read the quote, don't read the quote yet. Please, don't read the quote. All right. This is my favorite. As I was writing my PhD dissertation on Calvin, I came across this, and it raised my eyebrows, and they're still raised kind of metaphorically. Um, but Carl uh, Barth, one of the towering theological figures of the 20th century, uh, 
probably the, the father, so to speak, of neo-orthodoxy, uh, a man whose theological system I would not embrace, uh, who went too far, I think, in an unhelpful direction in maximizing God and minimizing humanity, so much so that he felt that even the scripture was defiled. And that's too far when you're starting to say those things so that you know, you're starting to doubt even the scripture because of the greatness of God. Uh, that's a mistake. You know, let's, let's just stay within the boundaries that Scripture sets, all right? And Scripture's God-breathed and is protected from human corruption. Thank God for that. But at any rate, um, Karl Barth was a super, super genius. I mean, brilliant man. And uh, he was a Swiss theologian uh, who was tasked with teaching um, early on, as I will be in, in January and in the spring semester, on John Calvin. So for me, anyway, as I'm following in Bart's footsteps teaching on Calvin, it's a bit daunting to read this letter, this quote that he gives here. But he's writing to his friend Edward Ternason, and he's been studying Calvin now for a number of, of weeks and on into a few months, getting ready to do these lectures, and he is really, frankly, overwhelmed and drowning. And so he writes these words to his friend concerning Calvin, and they're some of the most really staggering words you could ever read. A bit troubling, actually, as you read them, but I find it interesting. Anyway, this is what he said. This is his letter to his friend. Calvin is a cataract, a primeval forest, a demonic power, something directly down from Himalaya, absolutely Chinese, strange, mythological. I lack completely the means, the suction cups, even to assimilate this phenomenon not to speak of presenting it adequately. What I receive is only a thin little stream, and what I can then give out again is only a yet thinner extract of this little stream. I could gladly and profitably set myself down and spend all the rest of my life just with Calvin. Those are weird words when you read that. I don't want to read a demonic power, um, but I think what he's saying is I just don't have any idea how one human being could have done all this. And, you know, all you have to do is just uh, pick up one of Calvin's commentaries, like on the Minor Prophets or on Isaiah or something like that, and just open up and read what he says about Isaiah 31.7 or Isaiah 22.8 or some such thing. You are like, my goodness, what a body of work this man left to us. And, and the thing is, people still use his commentaries 500 years later because he just stayed away from current events and current illustrations and stories and just taught the Bible. And he just did that consistently until he dropped dead. And this is what he did. And, and he left behind commentaries on 40-plus books of the Bible and an ever-growing work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. So for me, as I was studying um, Calvin and as I was uh, doing my dissertation, um, you know, if, we go to, if we go to the end of the handout, I'm really just talking personal testimony of why Cal, what Calvin has meant to me. And how does John Calvin influence my... my um, Ministry. I won't deny that the so-called five points of Calvinism are, are important to me, uh, but they're really only a minor set of what I think of. And I actually don't even think of Calvin at, that, at this point when it comes to the five points of Calvinism. I think it's ridiculous. This is my personal conviction. I think it's ridiculous to think that Calvin wasn't a Calvinist. I, I, you hear this kind of say, it's just stupid. You know, they try to find that he didn't teach definite atonement or they, they're doing all this sort of stuff. That's ridiculous. Calvin had a more sublime view of the sovereignty of God than we can possibly imagine and he was most certainly what we would have called a five-point Calvinist. We'll get to that in due time. But I think that the sovereignty of God over all things is the organizing theme of Calvin's 
Calvin's uh, doctrine. And uh, soteriology, or that doctrine of how a sinner is made right with God, was just a subset of that system. The system that, that Spurgeon's talking about wasn't just soteriology, how a sinner is made right with God, salvation. That's just part of it, friends. I was like, well, that's an important part. I mean, come on, we're important. We are important, but we're not all important. And there is something more important than us. And that's really, really important to get our arms around. God is more important than us. And so salvation is not the most important thing in the universe. And it's really Calvin, more than anyone else, that kind of teaches you that. So salvation, we're going to see it if we get to it tonight. I don't know. If not, we'll do it next week. But that, that even justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, was just a subset of Calvin's understanding of the greater issue, and that is the glory of God. The problem with the medieval Catholic system wasn't justification by works. It was that their system denied God his full glory for saving us. That was the problem. And that's just a very, it's a reversal of how we would come at it. You know, Luther would say the problem is it doesn't work, we'll end up in hell. Well, that's a big problem, it is. But the bigger problem, and I don't think Luther would have disagreed, but the bigger problem was that God was denied his glory by a man-centered salvation. That's a big problem in Calvin's mind. So how beautiful is that? So just the idea of the centrality of God, the sovereignty of God in all things, the fact that I can say these words and believe that they're true, that God is more sovereign than anyone in this room can possibly imagine. And so whatever little problems you may have with predestination and all that reprobation, that's your little problem. But God is much more sovereign than you can even imagine. Towering over all of us, the creator, the sustainer of all things, to whom we will give an account. This is the God with whom we have to do. And you can't think two great thoughts of God. It's not possible to think two great thoughts of Jesus. It's just impossible. All of us think two small thoughts. That's the problem. That's why we sin. We think two small thoughts about him. And so that's what Calvin's helped me with. So, yeah, five points of Calvinism. We'll talk about it. I, wanted, I want you to understand what they are, how they can be supported from Scripture. But it's just so much bigger than that, frankly, because God is so much bigger than that. Not so much Calvin is so much bigger than that, but really Calvin is just seeking to get out of the way and give you all the Bible. And so then methodologically, frankly, I didn't really learn Calvinism from Calvin. I already knew the five points before I started, started studying Calvin carefully. What I was amazed at when I was studying Calvin was how he, he was just doing whatever the text was doing at any moment. You see what I'm saying? He was, just, he was just totally into Malachi when he was doing Malachi or into Daniel when he was doing Daniel. He was into, into Matthew or Mark or Luke or John when he was doing them. He was just trying to find what does this text say and bring it out faithfully. But that's not all he was doing. And this is the whole beauty. So methodologically, what it, if you just boil it down, what did you learn when you were doing your <clears throat> PhD on John Calvin? I really actually didn't learn eschatology from John Calvin. I actually don't think it's one of his strongest areas. I think the fact that he, for some reason, chose not to write a commentary in the book of Revelation or refer to it at all or mention it in letters or and he kind of acted like it didn't exist was a flaw. Every theologian has flaws. And the book of Revelation is, as we've already quoted from it tonight, it's inspired scripture not not to have been ignored. But who are we to say ought not with a guy who wrote commentaries on 40 plus books of the Bible? You should have worked harder. Should have gotten more done. What's the matter with you? Oh, really? Well, how many commentaries on books of the Bible have you written? You know, that kind of thing. So who are we to criticize? But so it wasn't really Calvin's eschatology that I learned. It was his methodology which is, was the center of his pastoral ministry, which I have sought to make the center of mine as well. And what is it? Well, I sum it up in this one expression. 
You know that old, old saying, so-and-so can't see the forest for the trees. Ever heard that before? Someone can't see the forest for the trees. What does that mean? What does it mean? Ted, what does it mean if somebody can't see the forest for the trees? so set on the individual things that we lose and miss the magnitude of the whole. Right. Focused, a beautiful answer. Focused on the details, the little things, you don't see the big picture. Right? And that can happen. Just, you know, staring at the bark of this one tree and studying the bark and, and the convolutions of that one square inch of bark. And it's like, do you, did you know that this is in a forest? here. <laughs> Did you know there's actually lots of trees? So there are people like that, individuals like that. Okay, well, here's the interesting thing. When it comes to the Bible, what is the forest and what would the trees be? Well, the forest, I think, would be the big unifying story of the Bible, the big picture of the Bible. What is it saying as a whole? 66 books, what is it saying to us? Is that important? The unified story of the Bible. Yes. Okay, but what would the trees be? Well, there would be individual passages of Scripture. Phrases, concepts. You know, something in Philippians, something in Romans. Those individual details, are they important? Yes. <laughs> They're both important. God made His universe out of atoms. So a constant movement from the forest to the trees to the forest to the trees, back and forth, back and forth, was what I learned from Calvin. That's what I try to do every Sunday when I preach. We're studying Hebrews, but we try not to lose sight of the whole book of Hebrews, what it's about, and then how it fits in the New Testament and generally then how it fits into the whole Bible so that you can just see. And the book of Hebrews is pretty important to do that because there's a lot about the Old Covenant and the Levitical system and all that, and it's easy to lose your way and to try to see what the big picture is. And so there's a lot of repetition in that. But meanwhile, I want you to know what this Sunday, Hebrews 2, 5 through 9 means. I want you to know what that... I try not to skip any verses. I want you to know what, because I have this attitude in my mind, I'll never get a chance to preach on Hebrews 2.7 again. So I want to do a good job because I'll probably never be there again. And so if you ever wonder what Hebrews 2.7 means, I'd like you to be able to go to the webpage and dial up the sermon, at least get my opinion on what it means. And I'm just one man, one preacher, but at least I'll try to give you something. Whereas I find that so often, you know, you go to, you, you're interested in a text, what does it mean? And you go on the internet and listen and there's nothing really about that verse. The person didn't even really mention it. And so they're, they're doing at best the forest, but no trees, no individual details. You don't really see it. So Calvin, now how did he do it? Well, it's these two grand public publishing projects of his life. The two biggies were the institutes and the commentaries slash lectures, kind of the same thing. But um, So the Institutes was the big picture, okay? That was the grand, glorious glory of God in all things. God the Creator, God the Redeemer, glory of God, etc. Discussed topically, what we call systematic theology, but that ever-growing system of big picture truth. Five different editions of the Institutes, everyone bigger and more developed and more in-depth than the last one. He wasn't just like republishing it with a new prettier cover this time with a few extra prefixes and an appendix now. No, I mean, he was just, he was reworking the actual text, enlarging it, shaping it a bit every single time. And he would have kept doing it if he had lived another 20 years, there would have been four more editions. 
And so the forest, the big picture, kept developing. Huh, I wonder how that happened. How do you think he kept learning new things about the big picture? Verse by verse by verse by verse by verse work he was doing. Book after book of the Bible. And then going back to the big picture. What does this teach me about the big picture? So there's this big, beautiful circle going on in Calvin's work all the time. Commentaries, he kept cranking them out. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, 1 John, doing all this sort of stuff. Cranking them out. One commentary after another. Those are the trees. Details. All right? And then back to the big picture again. That's what I try to do as well. Parenthetically, for myself, I think memorizing whole books of the Bible has helped forest and trees as well. Because when you're memorizing a whole book, you're going tree, 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 tree. And then as you review the entire book, you're doing the forest of that book, you see. And so you, you, you go over the whole book of Ephesians 200 times, you've pretty much got the big picture on Ephesians real well. And then you, somebody says, what does Ephesians 3, 6 mean to you? I'll say, well, I think this is what I think it means. And you ought to be humble because, you know, I'm not saying we can't know truth, but I'm just telling you as, you, as you just say, this is what I think it means. This is my conviction concerning Ephesians 3, 6 or whatever. So that's what Calvin has meant to me. So where are we on this outline? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't have the first idea. I have no idea, but those are my thoughts. Totally shredded it. All right, let's go back to page five, which is my best guess at where we are. All right. John Calvin's quote that Piper picks up on is a zeal to illustrate the glory of God. That's what you should live for. I mean, really, illustrate is just kind of an expansion of the phi of glorify. Oh, God, please be glorified in me today. What does that mean? I'd like God to, God's glory to be illustrated by my life today. And in the word zeal means a burning desire that that happened. You know, a zeal to illustrate the glory of God. That's, he's saying that that should be everybody. And so he wanted to do that in his ministry. And you should want to do that in your life. We were born, first of all, for God and not for ourselves. John Piper said, I think this would be a fitting banner over all of John Calvin's life and work. Zeal to illustrate the glory of God. The essential meaning of John Calvin's life and preaching is that he recovered and embodied a passion for the absolute reality and majesty of God. Therefore, the unifying root of all Calvin's labors is his passion to display the glory of God in Christ. When he was 30 years old, he described an imaginary scene of himself at the end of his life, giving an account to God and said, The thing, O God, at which I chiefly aimed and for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of thy goodness and justice might shine forth conspicuous, that the virtue and blessing of thy Christ might be fully displayed. I mean, that's beautiful. That's what, I, that's what I want to be able to say to God. That's what I did in my life, my ministry. You should want to say that too. Say, that's what I did with my life, that, that your glory might be more fully displayed. Now, Luther, as I've already hinted at, focused uh, on justification by faith alone. Convinced that the medieval Roman Catholic system of sacramental works could not result in justification, understood from Romans 1.17, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, felt himself to be reborn, walked through the gates into paradise, you know, spiritually. Beautiful. And tremendous correction needed to be done. And don't think for a minute that Martin Luther didn't care about the glory of God. He certainly did. But you just don't get that unifying center like you do with Calvin. Luther wasn't anywhere near as systematic and org orderly as Calvin. Actually, he can be maddening. If I had tried to do Luther's eschatology, I would have driven myself insane. Why? Because Luther, I think, wrote even more than Calvin. There's more works, but try to get at them. All right? Some godly scholars have given us some indices and all that. 
but he's just not an organized thinker. Even if you go to a sermon that he preaches on the text that you think is going to be the key for that aspect of his theology, you start reading the sermon and he starts out well enough, Luther, I mean, but then he's off on some other issue that's just really ticking him off about the Catholics or whatever. And he's just fired up about it. And we go after that for a while. And it's like, wait a minute, dear brother. I wanted to know about this verse. Why won't you tell me about this verse? I don't actually really care right now about your problem with indulgences and this argument you had with this bishop. And I'm, I don't want to do injustice to, to Luther. He was a great teacher, but he was nowhere near as meticulous and careful and systematic as Calvin. Doing the dissertation on Calvin's eschatology was methodologically a piece of cake. All you had to do is go to the Bible and think what verses had to do with eschatology. Then go to the commentary and the sermons and the institutes and find out what Calvin said about those verses. And he'll tell you. And you just start to, you know, and whatever, you, whether you agree or not, you know where to find it. And boy, that methodology just had a huge effect on, on the Protestant movement. It was like, to the Bible, read the Bible. The Bible's the issue on everything. And Calvin did that better than Luther. But also that whole issue of justification by faith alone, as I already said, is not a big enough, weighty enough center to everything, as important as it is. Calvin submitted justification to the greater topic of the glory of God. Confer concern for our salvation is less important than concern for the glory of God. That may sound like heresy to you, but it ought not to. This is what Calvin wrote. I acknowledge indeed that the Lord, the better to recommend the glory of His name to men, has tempered zeal for the promotion and extension of it by uniting it indissolubly with our salvation. But since He has taught that this zeal ought to ex exceed all thought and care for our own good and advantage, and since nat natural equity also teaches that God does not receive what is His own unless He is preferred to all things, it certainly is the part of a Christian man to ascend higher than merely to, act, to seek and secure the salvation of his own soul. There should be something bigger than that. I am persuaded, therefore, that there is no man imbued with true piety who will not consider as insipid that long and labored exhortation to zeal for heavenly life, a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not even by one expression arouse him to sanctify the name of God. Basically, you know, to some degree, what he's saying there is if, if heaven in your mind isn't God-centered, something's wrong with your view of salvation. You're being saved to God. God is your inheritance and your reward. He's your very great reward. He's what you get now that you're saved. And if your view of heaven is eternal, sorry, Tom Gears, golf or anything like that, not that you would even think that way. I know you Glory. would. <laughs> Glory. All right or seeing grandma again, that saintly individual who prayed for you, any of that, your thoughts of heaven are too small. That's not what it's about. It's that you will get to see God and to see His glory radiate a new world that's perfectly arranged around His glory. That's what you get. And, you know, none of us really fully has the grasp on that like we ought to. So no, don't punish yourself or beat yourself up. But just hear this sound that is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and come up higher to a better view. And the better view is your salvation isn't as important as the glory of God. I've shared this story before. I'll share it again. I went to um, Southern Baptist Convention in St. Louis. Christy, what year was that? St. Louis, SBC. Remember, we're visiting your relatives. Putting you on the spot. Middle of... Middle of yeah. 
Yeah, at any rate, a while ago. Um, sorry about that to put you on the spot. But um, yeah, we were there, and, and uh, there was a missionary mobilizing group that got John Piper to come speak to at their breakfast before the SBC that morning. So Tom Schreiner, who's written some commentaries and is a great uh, you know, friend of mine, brother, uh, theologian, teaches at Southern Seminary, solid guy. He and I sat together in breakfast and we listened to, you know, Piper just sharing some of his themes on the glory of God and the spread of missions. And that, you know, glory of God is the most important thing in missions. It's more important than saving souls. Is that, you know, and that's really what salvation is, is that they would glorify God and worship him. And so, you know, it's just the themes of let the nation be glad if you have read his book. And so we were enjoying that. And it was a great time. Nothing new, but we, we loved it. And then we went from that over to the SBC. And um, should I even tell this story? Yes, I should tell this story. Um, so we went and sat down, Tom Schreiner and I. Um, and uh, that was the first year that Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church, uh, was a Southern Baptist. And it was a very big moment for him to kind of have a slot on the Southern Baptist uh, Convention docket. And so he uh, told a very, I thought, very moving story about the importance of evangelism. And uh, his father, who was in the ministry, just on his deathbed, exhorted him to be faithful in in reaching out, seeking and saving the lost, which is absolutely a biblical theme, no doubt about it. And then they showed some very, very moving pictures of baptisms from Saddleback Church. And they baptized a lot of people. And they have a very, I think, um, good, well-thought-out system of discipleship after that. And But the ba- baptisms themselves were moving to me. And it was very well done. The videographer had, you know, really pu- pulling on the heartstrings, slow motion coming up out of the water, people crying, people hugging, people crying some more. I was crying. You know, it was just powerful. And, you know, music. And, all right, so then that was done. And then the spotlight came on the podium, and there was Rick Warren. It was very dramatic. And I was there. I was like, I was moved. I was like, wow. And he said, can anyone tell me anything in the universe worth more than a single human soul? Can someone tell me anything that could be worth more than a single human soul? I want you to go to one of these microphones here in the auditorium and tell us what it might be. So I looked at Tom Schreiner and he looked at me and I said, glory of God. But neither of us had the guts to get up and say into one of them, excuse me, we have someone at microphone seven. Yes, dear brother, what could be more important than the salvation of a single human soul? Um, The glory of God. I thought in my mind, what would he say? And the best I could come up with be, oh, yeah, that. But other than the glory of God, what would be? And I thought God doesn't want to be an oh, yeah, that here. He's got to be the center, even when it comes to salvation and missions. Other than that, you start getting skewed and sideways and start doing weird things methodologically and your theology starts getting corrupt and you start getting more man-centered and start questioning clear things that are taught in the Bible like predestination, wondering if it really is even right. I mean, we should do something about those Bibles that teach predestination and all that. It's like, what do you want to do? Cross it out? Um, you know, you, you're looking at that and it's like, you know why? Because we're not God-centered like we need to be. So for me, I think my whole sanctification my, is to become more and more and more and more God-centered in every decision and thing I do every day. That God would be the weighty center of everything, of my marriage, my parenting, my preaching, my teaching, everything. I just want God to be central to all of those things. And John Calvin helps me with that. That's all. Yes, Susan. Establishing the balance between 
seeing what God does for me mm-hmm. and the abstract idea of God's glory is my question. I think of the little child um, when my children were little. They had a sense of who they were and their importance. And so if I'm doing something really what I consider very important, it didn't matter to them. They would come and throw themselves into my arms and want to be hugged and take up my time. And as they grow older, they may be able to understand, wow, mom does other things that are important, and mom really has some wisdom. But you know what? They don't come to me as much and throw themselves into my arms regardless of what I'm doing. So my question really is, to what? how can we safe? God really means for us to go to him like that little child, here I am, daddy, mm-hmm. and throw ourselves into his arms. Mm-hmm. But yet if we're focused on, oh, his glory, oh my goodness, he's so great, he's so, yes, that's true, but how can I still get that and still come to him, in a sense, like that little child, full of myself, and say, hey, I'm worth, my little trouble here is worth coming to you, God, and getting you to put your arms around me. Does mm. that make sense? I'm trying. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I'm starting to understand. But Please help me. Did John Calvin have deep times with the Lord, deep experiences yeah. with the Lord? Yes. And has he, okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and, and I, I appreciate, <laughs> so, thank you, both of you. He, yes, he did. Um, and like so, he about Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. He went out and he's blown you know, away it's funny you should mention that, actually, because I want to I do more research in that. I'm reading a book, a uh, little book of Calvin's devotions from Psalms, and it's very intimate and very <coughs> personable and all that. If you're talking about those supernatural, like lifted up to the third heaven type experience, I haven't found that yet, but it doesn't mean it's not there. There's certainly... I'll tell you this about Calvin, similar to Edwards, frankly. Both of them extremely reticent to talk about themselves. They, they didn't spend a lot of time talking about their own experiences or what they did or whatever. You know, he really wouldn't have much from Edwards except that he had his own personal narrative, which was, you know, which we read. But you don't have a personal narrative from Calvin, so you kind of... If you're trying to find... You know, John Calvin, tell me about your personal prayer life. I'm not going to get a lot. If you want to know about prayer from such and such a text of Scripture, he's your man, you know. But his own personal thing is a little harder to find. That's why it's hard to even get to uh, how he came to faith in Christ. He just was like a humanist scholar at the University of Paris, and then suddenly he's running for his life as a Protestant. Oh, wait a minute. Something, we skipped something here. You know, and, and it's hard to find out exactly what happened with him. But I, I want to keep searching and see if I can find some more things. It's just hard to, hard to find. But let, let, me, let me finish and kind of just bring this point home. Okay, and again, not in any way speaking disparagingly about Luther or whatever. Luther, a great man of God, and, and, and definitely embraced the glory of God. Um, justification by faith alone was, was his, the centerpiece, I think, of his presentation to the medieval Catholic world. Um, Calvin just went, went for bigger, a bigger goal, and the bigger goal was glory of God. And then justification, a subset. So in his reply to uh, Satellet, who was a cardinal who wrote um, to the Genevan you know, leaders, trying to woo them back to Rome, basically. 
And so they, you know, they didn't have the wherewithal to answer his very erudite letter, so they got Calvin to do it. And Calvin had been an, it was in exile at that point from Geneva. They said, would you please answer this guy? So he did answer and just defends the Reformation with such astonishing grandeur and big scope that Sadolet said, it's hopeless, we're not getting them back. We're not getting this, this, these, these people back. All right. In other words, you know, I actually think I might just go, want to go and sit at his feet. I think I'm going to become uh, a Protestant. I'm not saying that ever happened. Wouldn't that have been sweet? But anyway, this is what he said to Satellite. He said, you touch upon justification by faith, the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Wherever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. See, that's the problem for him. That when, when you don't have justification by faith, Christ's glory is diminished. And so Piper says this. So here again, you can see what is fundamental. Justification by faith is crucial, but there is a deeper root reason why it's crucial. The glory of Christ is at stake. Wherever the knowledge of justification is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, he says. This is always the root issue for Calvin, that what truth and what behavior will illustrate the glory of God. And so this is a great paragraph here. For Calvin then, the need for the Reformation was fundamentally this. Rome had destroyed the glory of Christ in many ways by calling upon the saints to intercede when Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man, by adoring the Blessed Virgin when Christ alone shall be adored, by offering a continual sacrifice in the Mass when the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross is complete and sufficient, by elevating tradition to the level of Scripture, and even making the word of Christ dependent for its authority on the word of man. You see, it's just a bigger vision for the Reformation. Do you see that? A bigger vision. The bigger vision was that the medieval Roman Catholic system destroyed the glory of God in all of it. And that was the problem. And you could see if you're satellite, how do you answer that? You know, how do you answer that? Except, no, you're wrong. Actually, the Roman Catholic system does greatly magnify the glory of God. It's really hard to refute. So this awesome vision then revolutionized Western civilization. Hence the great quote from J.I. Packer. Gerhardus Voss, who is a New Testament scholar at Princeton, asked the question in 1891. He said, what is it about Reformed or Calvinistic theology that enables that tradition to grasp the fullness of Scripture unlike any other branch of Christendom? He answers, because Reformed theology took hold of the Scriptures in their deepest root idea. And this root idea, which served as the key to unlock the rich treasures of the scriptures, was the preeminence of God's glory in the consideration of all that has been created. It's, to this, it's this relentless orientation on the glory of God that gives coherence to John Calvin's life and to the Reformed tradition that followed. Voss says, said that the all-embracing slogan of the Reformed faith is this, the work of grace in the sinner is a, as a mirror for the glory of God. And so this is the order in Calvin's mind, God and Christ, glory, word, and therefore preaching. So the reason that we preach is you just go back up the scale. I want, the preaching opens the word. The word is there for the glory, glory of Christ who gives us God. That's how it works. So he preached and preached and preached like a machine he preached, like a relentless machine. I mean, I'm just in awe of how much work this man did. Um, but all of it so that God's glory might be unfolded. Calvin had seen the majesty of God in the Scriptures, and this persuaded him that the Scriptures were the very Word of God. He said, we owe to the Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God, because it has proceeded from Him alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. So I think Karl Barth should have read that, okay? <laughs> and let that correct his neo-orthodoxy. I am grateful that Barth destroyed liberalism, which was kind of dying anyway, 
but he was able to show how bankrupt it really was. But, you know, he just should have read that and said, no, Scripture is a faithful, reliable guide to the mind of God. His own experience had taught him that the highest proof of Scripture derives in general from the fact that God in person speaks in it. These truths then led to an inevitable conclusion for Calvin. Since the Scriptures are the very voice of God and since they are therefore self-authenticating and revealing the majesty of God, and since the majesty and glory of God are the reason for all existence, then it follows that Calvin's life would be marked by the invincible constancy that he displayed in the exposition of Scripture. It's just logical. It makes sense. I exist to reveal the glory of God. God's glory is wrapped up in Christ in Scripture. And as I unfold Scripture, then God will be glorified. That's how it works. So therefore, preach. Preach, preach, preach. That's what he did. Okay? So... Calvin had a consuming passion for preaching to the church, unremitting commitment to sequential exposition. You know, chapter two before chapter one, chapter three before chapter, or, you know, three, two, one, whatever. You know, you know I'm saying, I'm tired, mentally tired. You know? <laughs> Don't do it in reverse order. That would be terrible. I am the omega and the alpha, the last and the first, the end and the beginning. Sorry, dear friends, I am weary. All right. Calvin had seen the majesty of God in the Scriptures, and so therefore he wanted to preach the Word of God. And so he was committed, middle of the page 7, to sequential exposition. Calvin's preaching was of one kind from beginning to end. He preached steadily through book after book of the Bible. He never wavered from this approach to preaching for almost 25 years of ministry in St. Peter's in, uh, in Geneva, with the exception of a few high festivals and special occasions. On Sunday, he always took the New Testament except for a few psalms on Sunday afternoons. During the week, it was always the Old Testament. The records show fewer than half a dozen exceptions for the sake of the Christian year. That's the, that, you know, the, the church year, the calendar year that they would follow all these feasts and festivals. Listen to this. He almost entirely ignored Christmas and Easter in the selection of his text. Let's see if I can pull that one off. <laughs> I actually got dinged huge uh, by continuing on in Romans uh, into the first week of December. I'll never forget that. Um, I remember there was this one individual and he was giving me a hard time that I was just continuing in Romans. It was the first week of December and we were into Lent, whatever that means, all right? But we were into Lent now and so um, I was continuing, I was continuing in Romans, Romans 8, 1 through 4. I'll never forget that. And uh, this guy wrote me a very tough letter about my insensitivity to the issue of Christmas, Okay? So, hmm. um, I had two answers for him. I said, first of all, look at the calendar, and second of all, look at the text. Okay? Well, look at the calendar. It's only the first week. Give me a chance. I'll probably preach a Christmas sermon. I really will. Though it is essentially papist in its origins, Christ's Mass, yet I probably keep on doing it. And why? Because I think it's good to meditate on the Incarnation, and so I think it's a good thing to do. Um, but look at the text. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. He hadn't heard the sermon yet. I got the letter before the service. He looked at the bulletin. And so I said, just please hear the sermon. There might be something of the incarnation in it. 
If I do a good job, there will be. So at any rate. Now listen, don't be afraid. I'm not going to entirely ignore Christmas and Easter for the selection of the text. But that's what Calvin did. This is probably one of my favorite, uh, favorite stories about Calvin's commitment to sequential exposition. He was, and you don't know this yet, but he was recruited to Geneva by William Farrell. All right, we'll talk, talk about the story, God willing, next time. But he was recruited by Farrell, vigorously recruited. He managed to, uh, he agreed to be there and he began to preach and to work. And uh, the forces against him in the city, they just weren't ready for Calvin yet. They just weren't ready. And so they spit him out like a piece of bad meat. They evicted him and Farrell and banished them from the city and made a law that they should not return. Okay? So out they go to Strasbourg. Okay? That happened on Easter's Day after uh, Easter's Day, 1538. He left the pulpit of St. Peter's. He was banished by the city council of Geneva. They begged to have him back in 1541. The city was going to the dogs. It was awful. And they thought only a faithful preaching ministry like Calvin's would recover the city. So he returned in September 1541, over three years later, and resumed with the exposition of the very next verse. (laughs) Which I think has got to be the most kind of unstated slap in the face or rebuke there's ever been to a local church. You blew it. Three years of preaching you could have had. But... All is forgiven. I'm back. I'm here. Let's pick up and resume, shall we? You know, what's that? Yeah, verse 9, as I was saying. (laughs) So, uh, he was ministering to some French exiles, some Anabaptists. He was getting married. I mean, a lot of very eventful time. So, we'll get to that. But he uh, wasn't in Geneva in any case. So, um, unremitting labors. He was a hard worker. So we'll finish with this and then be done. To give you some idea of the scope of Calvin's pulpit, he began his series on the book of Acts on August 25th, 1549. He ended it in March of 1554, almost five years. After Acts, he went to the epistles, uh, 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 the Thessalonians, 46 sermons on Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians. Corinthians was 186 sermons. The pastoral epistles, 86 sermons. Galatians, there were 43 sermons. Ephesians, 48 sermons till May of 1558. So that's the next four years of preaching. And then there was a gap when he was ill. And then in the spring of 1559, he began the harmony of the Gospels. Interesting how he approached that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And was not finished, uh, still wasn't finished when he died in May of 1564. During the week, middle of the week, he preached, um, during that season, he preached 159 sermons on Job, 200 on Deuteronomy, Uh, 353 sermons on Isaiah, 123 sermons on on Genesis, and so on. Faithful exposition of Scripture. So we'll pick this up next time, God willing. We'll talk more about his expositional ministry. Yes, brother. So he preached daily, basically? Not quite. He preached 10... He did during the week. It basically worked out to 10 sermons every two weeks. So it's pretty close to daily. And if you look at the depth of the preaching, it's like, how in the world did he have time to prepare for those sermons and just get them ready and all that? It was just relentless. Meanwhile, his, his writings, his letters, as he's writing to heads of state and to you know, uh, kings and queens and, and doing all this stuff, uh, it fills four volumes, his letters do, well over 1,100 letters. And they're not like 
It's not like tweets on Twitter, dear friends, okay? 140 characters or whatever. These were letters. These are those kind of epistles those guys used to write. Those are just the epistles, never mind the tracts and treatises he was writing like Luther was. And, and then the ongoing editions of the institutes, his pastoral work, his work with the government there in Geneva, church discipline, executing Servetus, that took some time. We'll get to all that. But uh, at any rate, you know, there was just a lot of work to be done, a relentless hard worker. So, all right, let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for this evening, for the study that we've done tonight. We thank you for uh, your word, really, more than anything. My desire is both that, well, just all human agents would recede as john the baptist said he must increase and i must decrease speaking of christ and i just pray that calvin would just at some point just get out of the way and decrease and enable us to see the greatness of the scripture and through the scripture as we see through a glass darkly to see the greatness of god in christ thank you for this time in jesus name amen thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.